Sometimes you just have extra thankful days. And um, I don't know how much of it's caffeine and how much of it is just gratitude, but I'm so happy this morning and so grateful to be a part of this church family and to be able to look out and uh, to see you guys. And uh, it's just a blessing. And I love I, the, the ladies did such a beautiful job up here on the and men. I know some of you guys I have blackmail pictures of y'all messing with flowers. I'm just saying. Um, but it was so cool uh, earlier when Danny was standing up here and he matched the background. Did y'all notice that? Am I the only one who saw that? Oh, well, whatever. There he is. See? Look, he matches. He matches the background. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, good morning, family. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Uh, last week, we read through the entire chapter of Acts chapter 10. We're not going to do that today. Uh, we had the promise last week that, uh, that, that we're going to be looking at a very important section, which is verse 36 through 43. That's what we're actually going to be in today. Um, so let's open with prayer and then we'll begin. Father God, I thank you so much for this church family. I thank you for uh, just the beautiful ways, Lord, that you're uh, blessing us through the opportunity to, to, to bless others and to get to experience your grace in amazing ways. And Father, I pray uh, Lord, knowing that, that not everyone is, is in the same um, joyful mood right now, I pray, Father, that you will lift people's hearts, that you will help them to feel uh, embraced by your spirit this morning, and that you'll help them to recognize your love for them and the value that you have placed in them. Father, we thank you that although we know we, we have uh, in our own flesh, we are unworthy, but we know that through Christ you make us worthy. And so, Lord, we're thankful for that grace and that mercy that you lavish on us. And right now, as we get into your word, I pray in Jesus' name that you will speak to each person here. Uh, Lord, once again, through a flawed vessel, I know, Father, that, um, that there's, uh, there, there's things that you can do uh, through, as, as Balaam showed us, through the mouth of a donkey. And so, Father, I know you, you can speak through me, and I pray, God, that you will do so and bless each person here that they may have something to take home with them. Uh, something that they chew on through the week and that, that helps to draw them nearer to you and be uh, more sanctified, more Christ-like in their lives. May the world see the light that shines through us, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, um, what we're going to look at today is Peter's brief but packed description of the ministry of Christ as it was foretold and promised through the prophets of old. And so at a couple of times uh, during the calendar year, one of those times typically being the Advent season, we like to spend a little more time on what the Old Testament says about the Messiah who was to come and who, from our perspective, has already come. And so today, as we look at Peter's speech, because that's what it was, it, it was a, a sermonette that he gave to Cornelius and his household, uh, and it was the good news about Jesus. There's going to be a lot of connections here to the Old Testament. And, and I want to just say that this isn't just ancient history, okay? I mean, hopefully we, we do recognize the Old Testament's not just a, a bunch of myth. It, it, it is, in fact, ancient history, but that's not all that it is. It, it's a whole lot of fulfilled prophecy that shows that God has been actively promoting His own agenda since day one. So just be aware of that, okay? This reveals God's faithfulness to us. To do what he says that he's going to do. And so this morning we are going to focus on the faithfulness of God as expressed through his son Jesus Christ. This, this is partly why Christian Jews were so excited 
to see that, that Jesus, he fulfilled every single messianic prophecy. It was proof that God was accomplishing what he said he was going to accomplish through his Messiah, and that is the salvation of his people. Okay, so I want us to be on the same page here. Now, of course, Peter's, Peter's emphasis might seem a little bit out of place if we consider, hey, he's talking to a group of Gentiles, right? These are a bunch of Romans. Why is he, why is he sharing this stuff? But, but at the same time, uh, we need to recognize that Cornelius had already been praying to the God of the Jews, right? To Yahweh. And, and his revelation, God's revelation at that time would have been pretty much limited to the Jewish law and the prophets, other than what the Holy Spirit revealed. And so Cornelius may have been waiting for the Messiah too. And perhaps he was a witness to some of the things that, that, that Jesus had done. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate, uh, the ultimate revelation of God. But not everybody had the opportunity to see Jesus during his ministry. But it's possible that Cornelius did. However, not, not being stationed in Jerusalem, he likely would have missed out on being an eyewitness for the crucifixion and the resurrection. We do know that Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi, which is where Cornelius was, was stationed. But that's not where he underwent the passion. And so... He may have missed out on that. Cornelius may not have seen this. So what we're reading today is, is a fuller picture of Christ in order to fill in the gaps of what Cornelius might have already known. So, so Peter introduces his description of Jesus like this. As for the word that he, that's God, sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, dot, dot, dot. That, that's just his introduction to the next thing here. I want us to pause right there. Most of us in this room, I think, are professing believers in Jesus, okay? And so we're familiar, at least to some extent, with who Jesus is. And because of that, we might just gloss over these first few words, but, but let's, let's not, okay? Let's not do that, all right? This little sentence fragment has so much in it. And, and we're, actually, we're actually just going to touch on it today, and then we're going to come back to it next week as our tie-in to just this verse, as our tie-in to the Christmas story. So um, just, just read that again in your head for just a minute, okay? Read that again. As for the Word. What is the Word? Oh, how about that? It has more than one meaning, doesn't it? You know, it, it, we use it in reference to, to the written Word of God, of course. And it can apply to his, his spoken word, uh, as it probably does in this case. And, and it's even a name that's given to the second person of the triune God in, in John's gospel. And his name is, Tom? Jesus Christ. Yes, who, who Peter refers to as Lord of all. Okay. Of course, we know from Scripture that Jesus is the Lord of all creation. Right? He, he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and the Father has put everything under his feet. But in this context, Peter may mean all in the sense that, that Jesus is not only the Lord of the Jews, but the Lord of all the ethnoi, all the nations, the Gentiles as well. And his ministry, Jesus' ministry as the Word of God, as the Lord of all, was the preaching of God's good news. Peter specifically mentions the good news of peace, which is such a deep subject that that's really what we're going to spend most of our time on next week. We're going to come back to how 
Christ brings peace. But for, for now, though, let, let, let's look at the ministry of Christ and how it was foreshadowed uh, by the prophets, which, again, this, this reveals the incredible faithfulness of God. I want you to understand that's our, that's our main focus today, is, is how Christ is a beautiful proof of the faithfulness of God. Okay, uh, for instance, it, it was roughly seven centuries before Jesus' birth that Isaiah prophesied, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now, that's, that's God's heart, by the way. To, to lift up the downtrodden, to bless the hurting. His, his love for the poor just, just bleeds out of Scripture. We see it all through the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Anointed me. That, that's the word uh, mashok, which is where we get our word Messiah. He has anointed me. 700 years later, Jesus applied this very scripture to himself when he read a scroll from Isaiah in the synagogue. You remember the story? Of course, after that, people tried to kill him, right? <laughs> they were okay with him saying he was the Messiah, but when he said that he had come to bring, you know, to bring the word of the Lord to the nations, to the Gentiles, that's what made him mad. Funny how that works. There's more to that passage. We're going we're gonna to get back to that in just a bit. For now, we're going to pick up where Peter left off. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And then this is a key here. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. It's interesting to me that Peter starts off this, this statement by appealing to the fact that these Gentiles already knew about Jesus. They were already familiar with the reports of his ministry, even if they didn't have firsthand experience with it. He appeals to the earthly work of Christ that the Lord intended to bolster his preaching ministry, which was what? Do you remember? What, what was supposed to help, help his preaching ministry? What's that? Exactly, thank you. Signs and wonders. Sign, miracles. Doing things that would have been impossible if he were not who he was in order to prove that the things he was saying is true. Of course, the resurrection being paramount among those, right? Jesus performed signs and wonders as evidence that his testimony about himself and about his, his relationship to the Father was the truth. Okay, and, and on a related note, Peter gives examples of the works that Jesus did, and they sort of fall into two categories, if you look at it this way. Um, they are doing good and undoing evil, right? Doing good and undoing evil. He, he clearly states the former. He says he went around doing good, right? And, and then when he says, while uh, healing the oppressed by the devil, that would be the latter, that would be undoing evil. So, so let's explore that really quickly. Hopefully, um, hopefully we're all aware of Jesus' primary mission, which, of course, we're going to look at shortly. Uh, and so we might be inclined to, to downplay the importance of the rest of his ministry, but let's not forget that every single good deed that Jesus performed and every evil thing in the world that Jesus undid, they all pointed forward to his greatest ministry. And they all helped to prove his witness that he was the Christ the Son of the living God. 
And on top of that, his deeds were prophesied centuries before. Again, in Isaiah 61, remember, again, this is 700 years before the birth of Christ. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Why? That he may be glorified. That he may be glorified. What beautiful words. What a powerful ministry that Jesus had and that we have. I want to encourage you, fellow Christians, I I want you to, to hear me in this. Consider much of your earthly ministry to be the same as the earthly ministry of Christ. Is that how you're living your life? Are you binding up the brokenhearted? Are you preaching the good news to those who lack hope? Are we proclaiming to those who are addicted, to those who are trapped in ungodly lifestyles, are we proclaiming that there is freedom in Christ to overcome sin's power and its penalty? If we are also anointed by the same Holy Spirit that that, that lived in Jesus during his, His earthly ministry, then God can and often does use us in the same way that he used Christ to do good and to undo evil. Of course, there is a ministry that Christ had that we do not have. We're going to get to that. But there were things that he did. There were communicable aspects of the ministry of Christ that we can share to do good, to undo evil. So so let's discuss that starting starting with doing good. Okay, obviously, hopefully we're all understanding that, that helping other people to flourish you know, physically and spiritually, that, that is a way of doing good, right? And, and we ought to be engaging in activities that build others up and speech patterns that build other people up rather than tearing them down. And folks, it's, it's really incongruent to do good and to do evil, right? Kind of goes back to that James passage of the tongue. You know, from the same mouth come praise and cursing. He says, you can't have a salt spring and fresh water coming from the same source. It does not work that way, okay? Now, this is not to say that we don't sin. Obviously, we are saints who sin. But that shouldn't be what we are uh, known for. That shouldn't be what our lives are, are revealing to the world. They shouldn't be looking at us and saying, uh, you seem more like the devil than Jesus, It's referring to the trajectory of a person's life, the direction that you are heading. Listen, if you're doing good, it's hard to do evil at the same time. (laughs) But it's also hard for a person who is living for himself or for herself to suddenly become outwardly focused. I mean, I'd say that that's hard enough, in fact, uh, that it requires a miraculous change of heart. And the point here, it it isn't to get too... too too far away from the subject, is simply to say, if you profess to know and follow Jesus, then 
don't be doing evil. Don't be identified by that. Don't be swept up in that. Don't be in the habit of using people or of, of sinning uh, knowingly and intentionally or, or of abusing the good things that God gave us to enjoy in a proper context, like sex, like food. You know, there's things that God has given us that were supposed to be enjoyed in a certain way. Don't abuse those things. People who continue to knowingly and unrepentantly sin are living inconsistently with, with their profession, per perhaps even revealing the lie to their profession of faith. So, Listen, do good. <laughs> do good. Undo evil. Expose evil for what it is. Okay, throughout history, uh, it's been the people of the Christian faith who have been adamantly opposed to, to the socially accepted sins of their culture. I'm going to give you an example. Slavery was finally outlawed by the actions of Christian abolitionists. Did you know that? It was Christians who said this is something that needs to end. And I believe the same thing is going to happen with, with abortion on demand. I think it will be Christian abolitionists who fight against the accepted norm of killing the preborn people. I think we need to stand up for that. I think we Christians need to be known for being pro-life. It's going to be Christians who actually overcome racism rather than simply changing its focus. It will be the Christian faith that ushers in the truest examples of justice rather than the perverse view of justice that the world has. Anyway, um, back to Peter's speech. Referring to this Jesus who would do good or who did good and undid evil, he says, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. See, th this is the main part of Jesus' ministry on earth. This is, this is the most important way that he did good and that he undid evil. And that was through his historical death and resurrection. This is, this is the main thrust of the gospel message. You know, aside from who Jesus is, he's, he's the Son of God, God the Son, the promised Messiah. It's what God did through Jesus. His death, which was, I mean, certainly the most unfair death, right, to ever occur in history. You know, we're, we're talking about the, 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 the person who never did anything wrong who died a horrible, agonizing death, who underwent separation from his father. That unfair death undid the evil of sin's dominion in this world. It undid it. It reversed the curse of death. And through his death, Jesus paid for our sins and he opened the door to true fellowship with God. Do you realize that? If you view God as you might an angry father who sits up in heaven who is ready to just smite you at a moment's notice. Listen, God loves you. Do you have children? God has children. If your imperfect love for your children is as such that you would do anything for that child, think about the love that a perfect father has for his children. Think about it. 
God wants that true fellowship with us. And it's not because, you know, he's just so lonely he needs us. No, it's because he loves us that much that he knows that's what's best for us, to have fellowship with him. That is the ultimate good that any person can experience. And, and once again, all of this was foretold by God's Spirit. It was the power of God's Spirit speaking through His prophets. You know, the, the 22nd Psalm, most of you probably know that's where, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? comes from the 22nd Psalm. That, that gives basically a blow-by-blow description of the crucifixion of Christ a thousand years prior to it happening. That's amazing. <laughs> that's not something that you should be able to ignore. But did you know the resurrection was also foretold in the Old Testament? You know, in Psalm 16, King David wrote, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You know, this, this is the passage that Peter quoted in Acts chapter 2 in the very first Christian sermon ever preached. He's showing it. It applies correctly to Jesus. The resurrection of Christ proves that he truly is the Son of God and also reveals that God has accepted his sacrifice on my behalf and on your behalf. Jesus paid for your sins. His resurrection proves it. He accomplished his mission. Because of what God did through Jesus, We receive the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life when we have repentant faith in Jesus Christ. But, of course, you know, Peter doesn't stop there. He he also mentions that, that he and the other chosen disciples were eyewitnesses to this account. They saw this, you know, that, and that's kind of important. We consider this, this is obviously more than a myth or a legend. Jesus literally, physically, at a specific location on a map, And at a specific point in history, he rose from the dead. And remember, it's been said no one would die for something they knew as a lie. And 11 of the 12 apostles who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus, they were martyred for their faith. And the 12th, tradition says, was boiled in oil but survived and then was exiled. It's the Apostle John. So we can know... If you're not going to die for something you know is a lie, we can trust that their eyewitness, their, their accounts of the resurrection of Christ, we, we can trust that's true. When John spoke of the blood and water pouring from the side of Christ, he says, I say these things to you in order that you may believe. And then in 1 John, he says, I tell you these things in order that you may know. I got off the subject, but it, it's just good stuff, you guys. We can, we can know it's true. We can trust it. We can believe it. And since these, these men, these apostles, were given the task of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, they also got to share some good news that was maybe a little bit less encouraging to those who refused to believe, and that is that judgment was coming. Judgment is coming. You may have seen the bumper sticker. Jesus is coming back, and boy, is he mad, <laughs> you know? It's, he, Jesus is coming back. Verse 42 says, And he commanded us, again, that's the apostles, to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus Christ, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. 
And so connected to Christ's ministry on earth is the fact that he will be returning for a dispensation of judgment, which has also been foretold and promised throughout the Old Testament. You know, there, there, there are dozens, if not hundreds of passages in the Hebrew Bible that talk about the impending judgment of God. But there are some which give enough particulars that, you know, they kind of make you take notice of them when you look at the story of Jesus himself. You know, most of you are probably aware there are hints to the coming Messiah all the way back in Genesis. I mean, we, you know, in chapter 3, Jesus is referred to as the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. In chapter 12, God tells Abram that all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. But it gets even more specific in Genesis 49 when Jacob is blessing his sons right before his death. And he's, he's talking to his son Judah, and in his blessing to Judah, the son through whom Jesus' ancestry came, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. I mean, that, that, that's, you know, that, that's pretty amazing. God, God is referring to an eternal kingdom here, right? He's talking about a forever kingdom. And one in which the tribe of Judah will rule over and judge. And of course, in the New Testament, Revelation 19 tells us the time is coming when Jesus is going to return in his full splendor and he is going to purge the earth of the wicked. And so if, if his revealed will through, uh, throughout the Old Testament, if that has come true, if all these prophecies have come true, then I think it's fair to say we have every reason to believe that what takes place in the book of Revelation, that's also going to come to pass. Because God is faithful to His promises. And so when we look at these Old Testament scriptures and we see that they're revealed in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can know that His promises for the future are true. Christ is coming back. And that passage in Revelation 19, it's pretty intense too. You know, when Jesus comes back, it says He's wearing a robe dipped in the blood of His enemies. Folks, there is a time when God will establish justice on earth, and for some, His justice is going to be terrifying. We take a look at this description of the Christ from Psalm 110. You probably recognize the first part of it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Remember Jesus quotes that, referring to Himself. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, the Messiah is a warrior priest and a king, okay? And Jesus is equated with him in the book of Hebrews. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Whoa, yeah, that, that's a far cry from the, the, the first incarnation of Jesus, isn't it? I mean, there's only a few places, a few glimpses of the righteous anger of Jesus during his earthly ministry. You know, we see it when he observes heart-hearted people. You know, he gets indignant with them because their hearts were hard. We see it when, when he, he sees the temple misused or when he sees little children being turned away. But during the majority of his ministry on earth, Christ chooses not to pass judgment, nor to behave with, with aggression. And yet... He will eventually execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, shattering chiefs and kings. 
he will ride through the sky on a white horse, destroying his enemies by a word from his mouth. That's not usually the Jesus that we see in our mind's eye, right? But it's a pretty terrifying picture when you think about it. And we should all think about it because he is coming. It is, it is promised in Scripture. And yet, and yet, we who belong to the Lord by grace through faith, we don't need to fear his appearing because his justice is tempered with mercy for those who are in him. His justice is tempered with mercy for those who are in him. As frightening as God can and should be to his enemies, to his sons, he is an oasis of grace. I love the description of God's servant. It's in Isaiah chapter 42. The Lord says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I, I love this picture so much. Jesus, Jesus does not crush out life where he finds it, no matter how damaged it might be. Jesus nurtures life. He binds up the brokenhearted, remember. A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench, and yet he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thanks be to God that his fury against the sinful rebellion in the hearts of mankind is tempered by his patient, merciful kindness. For those of us who are, who are bruised, who are faintly burning, he is gentle. He nurses us to health. He heals our wounds. He fans our flame. He gives us the daily mercies to continue. You know, the word says, your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So, so you, you bruised reeds out there, you know, you, you smoldering wicks, take heart. Take heart. It's in that humble moment of pain that Christ's presence can be appreciated most. All right, let's look at verse uh, 43. All right. This is Peter's last statement to the Gentiles before the Holy Spirit falls on them in power. Uh, he says, to him, that's Jesus Christ, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That is a powerful statement. How many who believe in him receive forgiveness? Everyone. Everyone. Well, what does that look like? We'll, we'll, we'll get there. Okay. For now, though, just can we just be amazed at the goodness of God? Can we rejoice together at the goodness of God? You know, the, the primary focus of Jesus' mission was in order to provide the forgiveness of sins for people just as it had been foretold and promised. Praise the Lord. This is such an integral part of understanding what the gospel means. 
You know, I mean, if you just mentally check some boxes, like, oh, Jesus is the Son of God, check. Died on the cross, you know, check. Uh, rose again, check. If you don't understand that he purchased the forgiveness of your sins with his own life, then you're missing the point. You're still missing the point. And it's what's so amazing. It's, it's always been in God's plan to do it this way. It's always been his choice. Remember, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, it was always God's plan to remove the stains that separate us from his glorious presence through Christ. One of the most powerful sentences in the Old Testament is from Zechariah, referring to the day of God's redemption for his repentant people. On that day, the prophet wrote, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. What was that fountain? Say it louder. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was that fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. You know the song, don't you? And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose what? All their guilty stains. Church, does it make sense from any human perspective to die in the place of your enemy? No. No. It almost sounds crazy to us. But see, forgiveness of sins is a gift of God to us because of his character. Because of who he is. Y'all, y'all, there are a million and one reasons like every day that we could praise God because of his goodness. As it's revealed through creation or through relationships or through circumstances. You know, the sky on fire in the evening. The smell of, 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 of laundry that's been dried on a clothesline. I love that smell. Uh, the taste of bacon. You know, but, but it is the forgiveness of sins. It is the forgiveness of sins at great cost to himself. That is the ultimate expression of God's character. And even those under the Old Covenant, they understood this when they spoke of God's mercy. You know, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will have compassion again on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's from Micah 7. The Lord forgives us not because of our goodness, but His goodness. Because of His love for His chosen people. And so the the gift of forgiveness is because of His character, and it's made effectual by His Spirit. You know, Romans 8 warns us that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. But we know from many other places in Scripture that, that the Holy Spirit becomes apparent in those who have undergone the new birth. You know, once again, if you are born again, okay, just just remember, this this was promised centuries before Jesus came as a baby, okay? He talks about being born again. Jeremiah 31 says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel uh, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his brother, uh, his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, 
From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. I know, right? <laughs> How does God put his law on us? How does he write his law on our hearts? You know, Hebrews 10 connects this passage with the testimony of the Holy Spirit of God, which we know lives in those who have turned to the Lord through faith in Jesus. In the New Testament, the evidence shows that a person who is forgiven has the Holy Spirit, and a person who has the Holy Spirit is forgiven. And there's a connection there which, which we ought to be grateful for in so many ways. L listen, whenever you see the fruit of the Spirit show up in your Christian walk, please, friend, be encouraged. I mean, that, that is evidence of God's grace and mercy having been applied to you. I, I'm saying this, having been applied to you. That is evidence that you have received forgiveness of sins. Okay, last point. We, we, we'd be remiss not to mention the mode by which we receive forgiveness. Okay, again, in the book of Hebrews, we're reminded there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And our ultimate, permanent forgiveness of sins was bought through the blood of Christ. It was His atoning death, which Jesus offered up to His Father in our place that paid the penalty that we owed for our sins. And this, too, was promised and fulfilled. Our final passage today is, is just three verses from Isaiah 53. And even if, if you've heard this a hundred times, please don't tune it out. Don't, don't take this for granted, okay? Just, just listen. L listen to what Jesus did for you and me. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds or with his wounds we are healed. Why? Why was that necessary? Because we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why? Why? That's the question. Why? Why would he do that? Why would the Lord be pleased, Scripture says, pleased to crush his one and only son? Because in doing so, he purchases for himself many sons. purchased forever and ever from among his enemies. Even Jesus himself found great joy in the result of his sacrifice. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so we're going to end our message today as Peter ended his. You know, you, you've all heard this, this wonderful truth about Jesus and his ministry and mission and his accomplishment. But are you among those who receive his benefits? As Peter says, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins in his name. Have you received him? Have you been obedient to his calling and his commands in your life? What does Scripture say? Confess that He is Lord. Be immersed in water. 
Walk in obedience. That's the result. That is the proper result of repentant faith. And this morning, I want to I just provide this opportunity for you. This is, this is your invitation, I guess, or your challenge, maybe. I don't know. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, put your faith in Jesus Christ because you don't know when he's coming back. And I promise you, you want to be on the right side when he does. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you've not been obedient to what he's commanded, he says, repent, turn from your sins, turn to God. He says, be baptized. And that word means immersed. It means submerged in water. He says, confess. He says, obey. If you've not done these things, I challenge you to have the the, the strength to do it this morning, to have the courage to step forward and to say, I'm going to, to fully commit my life to Christ before these witnesses. I confess him as Lord and Savior. I repent of my sins. I'm baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm going to walk in obedience, and I want this church to walk alongside with me and help me in my journey. If that's you today, we ha- Danny, did we warm it up? It's warmed up. We have a baptistry that's warm this morning. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Amen. (laughs) And so if if, if you haven't taken those steps, I want to encourage you this morning. Don't miss this chance. Don't reject this opportunity. Receive what the Lord has for you. I'm going to go ahead and pray now and then, then we'll... God, you are so good. I'm I'm so grateful for today. I'm thankful for the the beautiful weather outside and these these beautiful people inside, Lord, and for your Holy Spirit and his his power and his work in us. God, I know um, that you're you're at work. I know, Father, that you you convict and and you, you comfort and you teach and you bless. And I pray, Father, that there's anyone here that has not yet done what you commanded them to do, to put their faith in Jesus, to repent. To, to confess and be baptized and walk in obedience, I pray that you convict them this morning of that need. Help them to come forward during the song and receive the, the graces that you have shared with us. We ask, Father, that you use your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. And I pray, Father, that uh, for those who are already, who, who have done all of those things and are striving to walk in accordance with your word, God, I pray that, th- that this morning is just an incredible reminder of your faithfulness. I love that we can look at things that were written a thousand years before Jesus was even born and see his life spelled out. It's just proof that you knew what you were doing all along. You don't mess up. You fix us, and we're the mess ups, but you fix us. You make us whole through Jesus Christ. You forgive our sins because when you look at us, you see your son. I pray if there's anyone here who has not yet received that, that wonderful grace that you will give them that this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray.